great pleasure to me, for me to introduce tonight's speaker, Claes de Fresse, I've been told. That's how you should pronounce it. Who is professor and chair of political communication at the Amsterdam School of Communication Research at the University of Amsterdam. He's also affiliated professor of political science and journalism at the University of Southern Denmark in Odense. Professor uh, de Fresse is the founder director of the Center for Politics and Communication. From 2011 to, to 2017, he was adjunct dean of the Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences. Between 2005 and 2013, he was the director of the Amsterdam School of Communication Research, ASCOR, and the director of the Netherlands School of Communication Research, NESCOR. ASCOR is one of the largest social science research institutes in communication science in the world. He is a member of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences and chair of the Social Science Council. He is also a fellow of the International Communication Association, ICA. In 2004, as Sigmund said, he was the first young scholar to receive the Niels Krim Prize which is awarded to Nordic scholars under the age of 35 for outstanding research in the arts and humanities, social sciences, law, and theology. Since he received his prize in 2004, Claes de Freese's academic career has been exceptionally successful. De Freese's CV, counting all of 35 pages today, <laughs> which documents all of his endeavors, is far too long to cite in detail, and he is still a fairly young man. Suffice it to mention that to date his list of publications includes 10 books and well over 150 peer-reviewed articles in well-renowned international journals, including journals such as Journal of Politics, um, Political Communication, and Public Opinion Quarterly and a mass of others that I won't have time to read up to you. He is also, <clears throat> he has been uh, the editor-in-chief of political communication since 2014, and he served as editor and editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Public Opinion Research, uh, IJPOR. Today, he serves on the editorial board of several ICI-ranked journals and reviews manuscripts for over 40 journals in journalism, communication science, political science, and European studies. Professor de Freese's research interests include comparative journalism research, the effects of new public opinion and European integration, effects of information and campaigning on elections, referendums, and direct democracy. His research has been funded through a number of large prestigious research grants, of which he is principal investigator, such as Europinions, a European Research Council grant from 2015 to 20, as well as Veni and Vici grants from the Dutch Science Foundation. In addition to the Niels Klim Award, Klaes de Freese is the recipient of almost 20 additional international awards, prizes, and recognitions, 
among them awards by the Danish Science Foundation and the International Communication Association. The title of De Vries' talk tonight is Dealing with Populism, a Challenge for the New Media. Professor De Vriese, the floor is yours. With an uh, introduction like that, uh, the contents of what will follow can almost only inevitably fall a bit short. Uh, let me start by uh, thanking you all for being here tonight and also for uh, inviting me to speak at this, uh, at this event. Um, needless to say that back in 2004, it was a big honor uh, and also a big surprise to receive the call from Bergen uh, to be informed that I was the first laureate of the, of the junior prize. Uh, I'm actually very grateful to uh, the Norwegian uh, government. I think they did something very bold. Um, and something with the benefit of hindsight uh, that other countries could learn from, namely to try and focus on the social sciences and humanities and its sister disciplines uh, as areas in which uh, there is a lot of important research taking place, which is probably some of the biggest impetus for understanding today's uh, societies. Um, in many countries, these areas struggle in terms of receiving recognition, in terms of receiving funding, and it is wonderful to see a government at uh, a point in time to take such a bold decision to recognize and to seek laureates coming from exactly these disciplines. So I think that there's a, a great uh, part of me that re really recognizes um, the bold decision of the Norwegian government back in, in 2003. I thought what more appropriate topic to talk about at a festive event uh, like today than the topic of populism. Um, nothing seems more appropriate for a reception party than uh, talking about uh, the wave of populism that many Western democracies is experiences in, in recent years. Um, let me start by saying that populism comes in many shapes and forms. Uh, while it is on the increase, it is by no means the case that it is increasing linearly in terms of its popularity. And if you look at some of the uh, photos here known to both the Norwegians and the Dutch as well as other uh, nations in the room, you see that they uh, come at different continents. What I've wanted to do in my uh, work in the past, while I was a visiting fellow at the Shorenstein Center at the Kennedy School at Harvard University, was to try and translate some of the abundance of research that we actually have in the social sciences and the humanities into practical advice for journalists. This is uh, new for me. Uh, I don't usually do that, but that is why I wanted to share it with you. Uh, it was a very interesting experience to go through, to be forced to try and translate some of the insights from diverse fields such as communication science and psychology and sociology and political science into direct and concrete advice. But let's first talk a little bit about what I mean when I talk about populism. I talk about it as a communication phenomenon, not so much as a categorization of some actors being inherently populist and others not. If you look at the, by now, relatively broad literature of what populism is as a communication phenomenon, three elements really stand out as being at the very core of, of populism. First of all, that populist actors represent themselves as uh, representatives of the people. They oftentimes fail, by the way, to define who that people is, but that they speak in name of the people. They speak in the name of the people against a often 
elite or a, a corrupt uh, and dysfunctional elite. That is the second element of a, um, a strategy that cuts across different types of populism, whether it is more towards the left wing or the right wing of the political spectrum doesn't really matter, but these two elements are really at the core representative of the people and up against this uh, horrible and corrupt elite. And then there's a third element that has to do with exclusionism, which can also come in different shapes and form. It can be exclusive only for the native community of a country or region. It can be exclusive for groups such as the working class against the uh, corrupted banking system. But these three elements, if you start looking at it, and that is what other colleagues have done across the globe, are three elements that appear again and again when looking at populism as a communication phenomenon. There's a vast majority or a vast um, um, body of, of research out there that tries to look at the causes of, of the populist upsurge in recent years. And many of these come uh, from uh, core um, fields in the social sciences. Um, economic conditions uh, is a feeding ground. The globalization movement is a feeding ground. Uh, there is a rich literature in political science that looks at both the supply and the demand of a populist rhetoric in different contexts. We know that the electoral system is a major impetus for the popularity of populists. Let's put it this way. Uh, it is because of the electoral system that you saw Brexit and Trump, and it is because of the electoral system that we are yet to see a uh, populist leader gain an absolute majority in a, a representative um, democracy in Western Europe. But a big question, of course, also is that if it is the case that one of the things that populists have in common is that they use specific communicative elements, well, that would lead us to consider the role of the media, and in particular journalism, as a major arena for us to look at better, to see what kind of platforms are offered to them and how they deal with journalism and media as such. Suffice also to say that the media landscape in recent years at the same time, not talking about causality necessarily here, but at the same time as we have seen the upsurge in populism has also changed dramatically. And if you look not only at changes in the average population, but break it down uh, by age, um, some of us in this room would maybe be really shocked to see what the level of readership is of newspapers uh, in today's age bracket under 30. But at the other hand, they consume news and information in places that most of us only got to learn uh, or have not even start uh, to discover yet. So in the presentation for tonight, I am offering you 10 recommendations of what should journalism and the media actually do when posed with this uh, populist challenge. These 10 recommendations all stem from research, and uh, I do have a paper that I'm more than willing to share with me, but uh, for tonight, have faith in the evidence being there from uh, across the social sciences and the humanities. So the first recommendation is, in fact, to do and pretend as if this is business as usual. There's great research in political science that shows the negative consequences of isolating and neglecting new political actors in the field. That can have backfire consequences both for journalism and the media by them being seen as elitist themselves and not giving a forum to a broad variety of voices. And we have also seen in cases such as the Flams block in the beginning uh, that it can actually contribute to the popularity of these actors. So the first recommendation would be to, to treat and to cover politics as usual. At the same time, 
and that's where the recommendations, of course, get a bit fuzzy, I would also offer the opposite recommendation to journalism. That is based on the fact that what journalism does really well under normal circumstances is to try and create balance in coverage. However, with all kinds of new political actors and political movements, whether they are left-wing or right-wing, or populist in nature or not, there is a tendency that this balance requirement leads to a what has been dubbed the false equilibrium, uh, that some views are given equal attention, despite the fact that they might only be held by 15% of the elites or elected members of parliament, or maybe only be shared by 20% of the general population. There's a clear and urgent need for journalists to provide that kind of context and also to reconsider whether this false equivalence uh, is a danger when covering new actors. Third advice, research has shown that many citizens are not necessarily happy with the type of news that they get during uh, election times. There's a stark focus on opinion polls, who is ahead and who is behind in the game. And the challenge of today's uh, populism is that part of this frame, part of this way of covering politics is leading into governing. Uh, the Trump presidency is obviously the prime example uh, right now, where the uh, coverage that is being offered of US politics in in the era where we should see the governing is too close to what we see during election time. This has a potential negative effect because we know that that emphasis on the polls and who is behind and ahead in the game increases political, citizens, uh, political cynicism amongst the electorate. So the fourth recommendation, also based on research, is don't focus too much on meta coverage. As the media industry has become one of the core industries uh, of our societies, there's also been an increasing attention in the news media themselves to the news industry. Uh, that is in itself maybe not so bad, but it is problematic when uh, called the enemy of the state that the media take to the rescue of making that a big story about themselves and how uh, they are being challenged. Um, this kind of coverage, which has this meta coverage and again focusing maybe on a strategic game rather than on political substance, we know from research, both experimental research and survey-based research, that it causes political cynicism. Don't chase every shining object is a uh, fifth advice to journalism. Um, journalist schools train their journalists and they do so diligently to be skeptical and to be critical of things such as press releases and corporate promotional material. If journalists at the political uh, newsroom use uh, um, politicians' tweets uh, and take them into the news coverage as leading elements of the, of the news coverage, they do a disservice to the profession itself. They should be treating tweets and these kind of utterances in no different ways than they treat press releases and commercial corporate material. We know uh, what the downsides are when tweets get leading, um, and this is one of the core reasons for why some populist actors in some countries have been so successful using social media, not so much because of social media themselves, but because of the magnifying glass role that traditional media have played in this respect by offering them front pages and the opening of the evening news. When the United States president calls the media the a public enemy in the United States, that is something to be taken serious. 
At the same time, this is not the invitation for journalists um, to uh, enter into a game of pointing out relentlessly that everything that comes from the White House or from other populist actors, that that is uh, not factually correct. We know from a vast literature on social psychology on correcting misinformation and misperception that this is very hard to do. Once something is said, it's actually very us, even though we have goodwill to try and correct that in our memory. That said, we also know from that very same research that being very factual about correction mechanisms is the best strategy. So not an endless pathetic sobbing about the fact that journalists are being offered incorrect information all the time. I don't think that that has ever been different. But a factual correction of the, uh, the non-facts is actually the best strategy. This is one of those examples where social science research can actually inform journalism. On the very first slide, you saw a number of countries in which you have seen an upsurge of populism uh, in the past 15 years. It is important for journalists to realize when they cover uh, populist actors that they are most likely not the first ones to do this ever. Uh, in the run-up to the Dutch election of last year, uh, the country was invaded uh, by international press. The reason being uh, that there was an idea that after the uh, Brexit referendum and the Trump election in the United States, that we would enter into a spring of sort of falling liberal democracies across Europe. Um, it does great disservice when journalists fail to contextualize and tell about populism in other countries, to tell about political entrepreneurs that have been successful and what some of the strategies have been in these countries, and rather treat every single election as a unique case. So the need to contextualize is big and imminent. Journalism can shape up. Uh, we know that from uh, uh, research in public administration and political science that the notion of legitimacy is something that is not only inherent to the institutions that we work for, but is also something that has very strong communicative elements in them and that actually have to be maintained over time. In a situation where journalism and the media are under fire, making sure that this kind of legitimacy is also being earned as a profession is important, and that entails being much more transparent about how journalism works. Uh, you see newspapers such as the New York Times and others starting to provide much more uh, information about how they actually compose studies, uh, compose their stories. Why do they use certain sources and not others? What have they tried to do in the make of this story that failed? This type of information is important if journalism wants to claim relevance in today's overflow of information. Insisting on details, explanation, justifications should be the core and hallmark of journalism. It cannot be the case that new political entrepreneurs enter the scene and are not challenged when they have brick and bold plans. If walls are to be built, if groups of people are not to come, if economies are to run differently, journalism must ask the question of how that budget then looks, what the parameters are, what the reasons are. This insistency of uh, on detail and on justification is one that is, comes very strong out of the literature also where journalism has failed in the, fall, uh, in the, in the past. Um, if political actors claim to be operating in the interest of the people, it must also be the task of journalism to question not only who that people is, but also which interests are really being taken care of under these circumstances. Finally, the press 
has been called anything from Lügenpresse to uh, fake news uh, and outright a state enemy. We know that when journalists bash politicians, and that is how the profession was made, that that can backfire on politicians. It is a risky business for journalists these days on how to operate, but there is a great need for them to make sure that there's a public awareness that rises on the qualities and the value of an actual free press. The way to do that is maybe not a continuous battle against the very political elites that has declared you the enemy, but to be non-combatant when, when called an actual enemy. So will these 10 rules solve the crisis or the challenge or what some consider the welcome corrective to representative democracies that we are going through right now? Obviously not. But my attempt here tonight and my attempt in, in, in the writings that, I, that I've just completed was to try and take some of the insights that you can pull across very different disciplines in the social sciences and the humanities to offer actual and concrete advice to be used in newsrooms when faced with the challenge of a changing political landscape. The journalism and the news media today are not only facing a new business in which they operate, but they are also, uh, they are also facing a big change on the uh, supply side in terms of the political entrepreneurs with whom they have to deal. I hope that I've also tonight given just a little glimpse of why I like the field of political communication so much. It is a wonderful, ever-changing arena, uh, which is truly interdisciplinary in nature and operates right in the intersection between communication science, media studies, sociology and political science as part of uh, psychology. We are venturing into working together with information lawyers and uh, people from the uh, information sciences. Uh, th so this is an ever-changing uh, uh, arena for research, um, one that I hope to work in many years from now. But I did want to conclude by also thanking the Holberg Prize for being an impetus and being a very early recognition of this area of research. Uh, coming from the area of communication science, uh, Pearl was joking right before uh, we, we started tonight that, of course, there is a hierarchy and a history in the social sciences, too. And uh, without going into detail about uh, her observations, suffice to say that the field of communication science is a relatively new, young, a new one. Um, and it was therefore a great opportunity to be the first laureate from such a field uh, to win the Niels Klim Prize and later on being the first representative of that field to enter into the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences. So thank you very much for that and that's where I leave it for tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. He has agreed to take a few questions, so if the audience would like to interact with him, yes. My name is Peter Drunt. Last night I saw a movie, The Post, mm -hmm. and it depicts the conflict between uh, political power and responsibility for the publisher to take its own course. I wonder why you did not include as the one and most important criteria that you just listed uh, the courage to defend free press against political pressure. There's no doubt um, that 
the autonomy of the press is one of the most precious uh, elements of the press, and that is also why it is so interesting that in the past 10 years, one of the enemies that have been chosen by the upsurge is the incumbent or, or, or the existing press system. Uh, they are being depicted as being part of this illeg illegitimate and corrupt elitist system. Um, it is, goes without saying that maintaining that is one of the core values of liberal democracies. But it is not the press itself that must create that. It is very much politics that must create the uh, opportunities for the press to be an autonomous press. <laughs> it is very much a citizenry. It is very much a part of us as educators to make sure that there is a reappreciation of the value of a free press. We've been going through a period of time in which the free press for the past 60 years in most Western democracy has been taken for granted. We are now at a period of time where we are having discussions that we have not had in Western Europe since the 1930s on the role of a free press. But it is not the role of the free press to fight this battle for us. It is the role of people like us. It is the role of politicians to make sure that there is a system in which the free press can, can thrive. And publishers should always publish, even though they're the, <laughs> referring to the movie. Still, I'm glad that he took the decision to uh, defend the freedom against uh, McNamara and all their, all their friends in sure. the political uh, yeah. arena. Yeah. But we can't rely on them to also take that battle. Yeah. Anybody else? Hi, yes. You started out with an observation at the beginning, which I think is uh, extremely important, that um, in fact how people, uh, the way that people consume um, the material from the media has changed dramatically and the people under the age of 30, uh, for people under the age of 30, this discussion is pretty much irrelevant. And so my question to you is, what do, go, going forward, I can understand your advice to the mainstream media, but do you have any thoughts about what we do in a world when actually large proportion uh, are not taking their information from the mainstream media? Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question, and I think also one of the big empirical challenges for us as a field right now. So on the one hand, there is an assumption indeed, uh, and also hard evidence that young people are not turning to the broadsheet newspapers, for sure. At the same time, they are in a communication environment where they spend more than nine hours a day being online on average. This is an average. Um, there is actually a great opportunity and quite a lot of uh, circumstantial exposure to news. This is one of the things that we are only at the beginning of understanding as scholars. So take, let's take Facebook for an example. That's a platform with two billion users. As a scholarly community, we have almost no understanding of how the platform works. It's not going to come from collaboration with the platform itself. It is maybe going to come from uh, the authority that comes after regulation is being considered for the uh, platform to at least be uh, transparent and open about how their algorithm actually works, what kind of political ads that they show. But one of the big unknowns of that change that you're describing, and especially the, say, the 18 to 30 bracket, is that we really don't know how much they are really exposed to. We have an underlying fear that it is not a lot. Uh, however, on platforms such as Facebook, and even on some of the more flimsier social media platforms such as Snapchat, there's a lot of information sharing. We have too little information to really assess how much of that has any political relevance or any public information relevance. That's my first uh, part of the question, uh, or answer, answer to, you, to, you, to your question. The second one is that 
we've seen also in previous generations that there's a huge socialization effect, and may, effect, and maybe what we've become accustomed to is a generation that was exceptional in many ways in terms of its level of, of, uh, of being exposed to public information, namely part of also this generation that is in the room that was at the height of the, of the newspaper publishers, uh, and maybe we're also simply having to get used to that we are in a different era where this happens on different platforms, and maybe not with the same level of detail in the breadth of the, of the sense uh, as it was in the past, but more in the depth of some areas. The opportunity today, of course, also to self-select and get much more in-depth information about areas that you really care about is also tremendously much higher. So I would consider myself somewhat uh, agnostic almost as to whether we should be depressed or not tonight on a, on a question like that. Uh, it is sure that there's a massive migration taking place, and it is also a fact that we are currently, as a scholarly community, not well equipped to answer these uh, questions systematically and empirically. Thank you. Was it per? It's Pearl. Yes. <laughs> you have the word. The comment I made was that sociology was the mother of all social sciences. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm going to go on about science. I really liked the way you summarized your talk using the 10 recommendations, but they are all from your discipline, wonderful, as to what you can, how you can inform journalists, mainstream journalists, yes. But I would think that we as scientists have a different role as well, and that is to help journalists make sense of the world. We make sense of science, so our role is, and that's where you started, where you were saying, what are the possible antecedents or factors underlying growth and populism, it's the globalization and cleavages and so forth and so forth. But I would like you to reflect on the role that you see scientists, and I assume social scientists, play to help journalists in dealing with the rise of populism? Thank you for a wonderful and easy question, Pearl, as always. Um, I think there is a big role, especially in a point in time where there is a body of literature in so diverse areas that is really informative. We know a lot from sociology, from political science, from uh, econometrics about the conditions under which this is more likely to happen than, than elsewhere. Um, translating that uh, into background information for journalists I think is important. The point of this exercise has been to say what can we extract from that body of research in the social sciences that actually speaks to them as a profession and to their daily lives. Of course, they need briefings uh, on economic systems, on what it is that migration flows do to societies, and when these things come together, what kind of pressures uh, then occur. That, that goes without saying. So this, this endeavor was really to say, what can we extract across different disciplines that speaks directly to their daily work routine? Having said that, do we do well enough as social sciences to have that dialogue uh, with journalism? Uh, probably not. Uh, there's also, I think, not been a good tradition of having this interaction back and forth. 
uh, journalists uh, are not always willing to engage in that uh, in that that discussion with social sciences. Um, and I think many in the room have had the experience of interacting with the press themselves uh, and probably getting a phone call more or less to provide a quote for a story that has almost been written and you're only there to back it up with a factor two. So there are big conversations to be to be had about how journalists treat and interact with also the social sciences if they want to make use of that body of evidence that, that we have there. At the same time, I think we also are challenged uh, to step somewhat out of our comfort zone. Uh, when I speak to my graduate students uh, about what they can, what they should do if they are uh, um, uh, approached by the press, I said, well, I have sort of three layers where I say whether I'm willing to have the conversation or not. First of all, if they want at that rare occasion that it happens to actually know what my research is about, obviously I will help and talk to them. Then there's a next layer, which is the layer where I consider myself an expert because I know the literature and I know the research. It may not be my own research, but I know that research research and I can summarize it and I can translate it into something that can be helpful for a journalist writing a piece. And then there's the rest. And that is, of course, where we should not be going. But many social sciences are not even willing to go to the second layer, but they cannot expect a journalist to call them about their recent publication last year. Uh, that's not what the journalists seek out. And we must also push ourselves to be able to go to the second layer and say, we actually know this field sufficiently to act as an expert beyond our own studies. Then, should we take uh, a last question, or, yes? Okay, well, thank you very much, but I would like to elaborate a little bit more on um, the investigation part of what we very much like of good journalism, but what we do not see so often, and which is more and more in our field as scholars, um, uh, versus the enormous pressure we see journalists uh, are working under to come with instant news. And I think particularly the instant news uh, part is very much playing into the populism uh, arena because it's very easy you know, to, to, to talk a bit about a quote or to uh, bring that as a meta, uh, meta news. Whereas I think that, uh, and, and that's also where some around the table um, are also writing in, um, in, in newspapers or writing columns, and I think um, we have, as scholars, we have to go further um, than just an opinion. I think that is also, I, I think, the, the meager part of the, um, of the, the scholars uh, very often. But how can we bring more the investigation part uh, in journalism, but perhaps also in the collaboration with the scholarly uh, community? Because I think there's the link. Um, um, I think because there we also get the insights in instead of just a reconstruction. I'm a um, um, member of the supervisory board of Avian Amro, so you can uh, uh, imagine that there is a lot of uh, um, uh, articles in the press, and I'm looking, of course, uh, reading everything, but they talk just about a reconstruction about what we did last week, you know? And I think, no, it's about an investigation mm. of the root causes. That is also what makes good journalism um, interesting, you know, that was what the, the movie you saw yesterday, what makes it so interesting, because there's investigation uh, behind it. So I, I would like to reflect you a bit on that, you know, the investigation versus that um, uh, instant news about nothing. Yeah. yeah? Um, 
My answer will be uh, twofold. So on the one hand, one of the, I think, overall conclusions of, of, of this uh, um, survey of academic literature is actually the recommendation to sometimes make that, resist that temptation on the side of journalism. It is uh, obviously the case that in a competitive news market, being first with a story is a major economic incentive. Uh, the clickbait model of how these uh, journalist platforms and the social media platform work, work in the hands of this. At the same time, it is not contributing to the uh, quality of journalism and the long-term viability of journalism if you jump on, say, every single tweet that a politician has made. So it is an invitation to resist that because there's actually evidence to suggest that it not only backfires sometimes on those uh, politicians, but on journalism as a profession. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it, the investigative journalism, we've come out of uh, about 25 years of being told and nothing else than that news is a free commodity. We've had free newspapers, we've had free online access to uh, news uh, in the initial phase of going online. And that has taught an entire generation, plus has retaught us that news is a free commodity. It is not. It is very expensive. It is a huge societal good. Uh, but you must be willing to make investments uh, in, in journalism. So one of the things that we have to do is that we have to re-educate this idea that journalism is actually not a free commodity. It is a, uh, if, if we leave it as a free commodity, uh, it is a very imperfect market that does uh, a highly or uh, great injustice to a democracy. Um, but that, take, that will take time. Uh, but it is an interesting phenomenon that in the past two years you have seen subscription rates to newspapers like The Guardian and The New York Times go up again. Uh, it is an interesting observation to see that a number of local newspapers in the United States that has gone down with 80%, there's only 20% of the local newspapers left in the United States that were there three decades ago, that some of them are now being bought up and becoming part of bigger conglomerates to try and rejuvenate some of that local investigative journalism. I'm not worried so much about investigative journalism in The Hague. There are too many in The Hague. But I do worry who it is that is taking care of what the city council is doing uh, in the eastern part of this country or in the northern part of the country. That's also a very important role of journalism to be there. And that business model is by no means there currently. Well, on that note, uh, any other questions? Or should we... Did Graham have one? Yeah, yeah, are you are you uh, willing? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm keeping you from the drink, so that's my only. Uh... Yes. My, my question really is, um, if to ask is populism outside journalism, because it seems to me that the way that, that journalism has been redefined, perhaps not by journalists but by proprietors over the last 20 years, has to quite explicitly place it within the entertainment business rather than the news business, and what that means. Is, is really that journalists find themselves as tools of populism rather than critiques, critics of it. So I wonder if you've got a comment on that. Now, there's actually uh, there, there's a, a, a range of studies. Um, some of the first one that uh, actually date back to Silvio Berlusconi, which is, of course, an interesting and relatively early European case uh, of how both media ownership and uh, populist rhetoric uh, can go hand in hand, um, and that make a distinction between what it is that journalism and news organizations do here. Um, so there are some organizations that are themselves more and more moving in the direction of, uh, direction of becoming actors in this process. 
So you've seen the Bild Zeitung in Germany, you've seen the Telegraph here, you've seen the British newspaper for a longer period of time taking specific stances on political topics and also offering a very direct uh, viewpoint uh, in this discussion, uh, almost running a campaign along with a political party or a movement. Um, so there's a, a redefinition of some news organizations that si simply enter uh, in that nexus in a different way than you saw in a period of time where more of the mainstream press was similar uh, to the extent that they would not necessarily t partake with, uh, with political causes. Um, and the other part is uh, a, an investigation of how much of a platform forum is given in a news outlet to different types of actors. And that's, of course, a discussion. Uh, some outlets, uh, like the BBC and its charter, or other public broadcasters, or some broadsheets in, Euro in Europe because they're funded by, uh, by public money, have the obligation to have this balance. It comes in many different forms across uh, European countries, uh, but there's, of course, there a, uh, a discussion of whether or not that there's a disproportionate high amount of attention to certain viewpoints or to certain political sentiments uh, in, the, in the press. Again, if we uh, compare to public opinion surveys or if we would compare to uh, the composition of a, of a parliament at any given point in time, uh, that the reflection of where the news is is sometimes quite far away from where both the public and the political elite is. And that discussion is the second discussion as to what is the role of the press here. There's the almost activist part, which is still a, a, a smaller part of the entire press landscape. And then there's the discussion of the proportionality and attention that is devoted to, to different political viewpoints. Well... I'll give you the last word here, and uh, thank you all for your participation, and thank you, uh, Klaus, for, for uh, giving this wonderful speech. I'll leave you now to mingle, enjoy the drinks and the snacks and whatever. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.